up here again. This is another syllabus journal entry. We're going to go through some of the headlines and some of the important updates on current events that are going on. We're in a really rocky period in American history right now. It's obvious to me that we're going to go through a very difficult time. It's beginning to show all the different signs and symptoms, the outworking of all this subversion, all this leftist political confusion. It's time for us to prepare down the hatches, we have to weather the storm and prepare to come out the other side and we have to survive this, we have to fight and win we have to fight and win so this is about faith this is going to be about a good fight of faith and if you don't have anything substantive in your life and principles to stand on you're not going to make it guys Welcome back to the syllabus journal entry, and we're doing another entry report here. And we're just we're really at a point now, as far as the the calendar, that we're really waiting for this McAuliffe Youngkin election to go off in Virginia. I think everybody in the United States is waiting to see how this thing goes. It appears to me that we're at a very interesting crossroads today. It's October thirty first, twenty twenty one, and it's Reformation Day. And of course, if you're an American. And you wave your flag and you like football, you probably have no idea what Reformation Day is, and that's a shame on you. Because the idea of Reformation Day is one of the constituent fundamental pillars of historical reality that led to the development and the revolution in America in 1776. So without the Reformation Day, October 31st, which they like to carefully cover up with the ghouls and the witches and, and the, uh, the the living the night of the living dead. We do it to the kids, right? We make the kids wear little monster outfits and eat too much candy. And uh, we all participate because it's, it's so fun. We just <laughs> look at the shelves. Everyone is doing the, the little monster uh, Frankenstein outfit and the candy now. So you know, do the vampire. It's bloody. It's gory. And the whole part, point of it is that it, it blocks out and covers up the, his, the real history of Reformation Day and what it means. And what it means is that there was a time when men had the courage of their convictions to stand up for what's right and to and to have their Bibles. They remember back in the day when the Reformation Day, when men knew what it was. When men knew what Reformation Day was, uh, Reformation Day to them was the ability to have their own Bibles and to have their own relationship with God. And so this is a really essential and fundamental fight for freedom that underpins Reformation Day and the United States altogether. Because the essential component of Reformation Day was the 1611 King James Bible. And that was one of the central, essential components of the American Revolution, too. Was that men were, were not going to be told by Hessian rapists. Remember, we had to go back through the entire history of the Hess-Cassell connection, right? Was it, wasn't he a, a, a prince or a duke or some kind of nobility, some kind of princely title, the Hess-Cassell estate? The Hess-Cassell estate was a, a German operation, a German prince, a German duke, maybe. Maybe he was an archduke. I mean, who really knows? I mean, we're Americans. We don't really know these things. But anyway, the archduke from the Hess-Cassell family line decided to send Hessian soldiers. 
and the young Bauer banking operation, what we know today is the, the Rothschild banking operation, there in London, would use these Hessian mercenaries and bring them all the way across the ocean to the United States so they could rape and pillage and plunder the countryside and, and live in, in the homes of, of the colonists and take their guns and use their women and eat their food. And, and so the entire premise of the king's power and the volition of the king to bring his his rented mercenaries over there was to keep the, the colonists in line and make sure that there was no... Nobody would revolt or rebel, right? And so ultimately, this was the auspices, uh, the, the direct imperial power of the throne and, and the crown of London as an organization and as a, as a, as a banking fiefdom, ultimately to, to tax the colonists, even though they didn't have any representation in parliament or before the king. And so you got to remember, George, King George III, was a Catholic. He was staunchly represented by his his advisors there, the, the Society of Jesus, the men around him, who were you know who work with the Pope and who who make sure that they are working in the interests of Christendom and to Roman religion. And of course, these colonists in America, the, the men whose ancestors had came from the the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, and they came over the ocean and sailed the ocean blue, right? They came to America for religious freedom. They came to America with their 1611 Bibles because they were Protestants. They were Reformers. They were Lutherans. They were Huguenots. They were Baptists. They were Anabaptists. They were people who had to have religious freedom in order to express their own conscience. The conscience that they held that those scriptures were true and that, that the maxims and the teachings of the scriptures ought to be carried out and vivified in their own lives and that they should t take every every effort to leave behind the imperialism and the monarchical power of Europe that was controlled by the Vatican. You have to remember that the Inquisitions, uh, the various ones, the Roman Inquisition, the various European Inquisitions, the, the, the Spanish Inquisition, the different work of the Holy Office of the Inquisition over many centuries, many, 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 some 600 years, where they built up their inquisitors to go out with absolute power and to just snag anyone that they felt was questionable, anyone who they thought was accused of heresy. And in this way, millions and millions of people were burned at the stake. It was a horrifying desecration and bloodletting that, that people don't really want to talk about. They we would just want to smooth it over. And I think we're getting back to that point in time now where we are looking at broad population control. We're looking at plans through the United Nations for sustainable development. And ultimately, we're returning to the medieval imperialism of old. We're returning to a period where men were nothing but serfs on the land, and there was the massive, intense wealth of the privileged elite in their high castles, and there was everyone else who lives in the sheep barn. And we're getting back to that point now. And I think that the, techno the technocracy and the supposed age of scientific enlightenment that we're supposed to be living in here, I think that it's really just a farce and a lie. And we really haven't moved beyond the strictures and the mental boundaries of the Middle Ages. The Dark Ages, if you will. And I think that we're, we're still right there. And we're still confused about what Rome is and what Roman religion is. So let's just start off this episode and let's just, just talk about this confusion, this confused state we're in over what is Romanism? What is the nature of Catholicism and what we're seeing today in politics? Especially with this the nihilism and this, the, the mounting violence that, that's building, the impending 
great solution, you know, the grand solution of the great reset. It looks like they did. It's just interested in, in, in starving off half the Earth's population and just re restarting the ecology of the planet back to zero and and. and so we have to recognize that this this new development, this new ideological deindustrialization, this new sustainable develop, development program, Agenda 21, that's coming out of the United Nations, is not separated from the work of the Vatican and, and, and the institution of the Vatican and the power players and the elite networks are centered there in Rome. So we need to just come to that, the, the, open our eyes to that reality so that we can clearly see the truth. And so today I want to really zero in on a particular international entity, a think tank, an organization that was built out in the 50s, and it's called the Club of Rome. And in order to really get an idea of what this Club of Rome is and what its intentions are, we need to kind of you know, do what we do best here. We need to delve into some of these articles and some of these information. So we have a lot of different lecturers and international leaders and we have to get into this particular subject and it's it's as many of these podcasts are it's very convoluted it's very complex it deals with international law and it deals with the way in which treaties are handled internationally and it has everything to do with developing global governance and and getting to a point where all the different uh, passports are operating together in the same particular protocols and and with a symmetry between their different rules throughout the, the world we have different uh, national enterprises different sovereign states who have different languages different money different economic standards and all kinds of, of different cultural values and mores and norms that, that don't necessarily exist in the nations that are around them and so to get a system of internationalism and a system of passports where all these different various uh, independent nation states, if you will, can work together is kind of the presupposition by which the internationalists are building what we are looking at as a, as a new world order. In other words, a normalization between all the different nations of the world through different rules. And we'll get into the creation of the United Nations and how that all began. But in order to really get into this, the depth and the mire of this rather complex conversation, we're going to first turn to a podcast with Johns Hopkins University. So this is going to be Hopkins Podcast. And the particular episode was 15 weeks ago, and it's called International Law and Global Governance. And we're going to hear, hear some interesting facts about that. Sets of rules, norms, and standards that make up international law provide a broad framework for actions of countries around the world. It also has a profound effect on our daily lives, governing, for example, how we travel or how we send or receive money from abroad. On this podcast, we discuss how international law is enforced, how it affects American foreign policy decisions such as drone strikes, and whether it can be used as a tool to address transnational issues like climate change. Joining us today to discuss international law and its role in global governance is Professor Harold Hongju Ko. Harold Hongju Ko is Sterling Professor of International Law at Yale Law School. He first began teaching at Yale Law School in 1985 and served as its 15th dean from 2004 to 2009. Thank you, Professor, for coming on the podcast today. Um, so, to introduce this episode, we kind of wanted to cover, you know, the basis of what this podcast will be about. So what exactly is international law and what are some of the different facets of it? Well, international law both um, constrains uh, action 
by nation states in the global arena, but it also facilitates action because when nations are cooperating within a framework of international law, uh, they're able to rely on each other and engage in cooperative behavior. Um, so international law has been around for uh, really since the, the um, beginning of um, civilization. Uh, it's been written about since the Romans in the 900s, and um, uh, it's been a feature of uh, ecclesiastical work. Um, the Law of the Sea has been around since uh, the 1100s. Uh, but we have a more sophisticated system now that's emerged since um, World War II and the creation of the United Nations system, the Bretton Woods system. All right, so at this point, I mean, I just want to stop it right there. It's a pretty long uh, hour and some long uh, podcast interview that they go into, but we really just need to put a pause right there and just how he kind of glosses over the first part there and the most interesting aspect of this idea of IR or international relations and it comes out of the the ancient past out of antiquity and it goes back to the code of Hammurabi and like the gentleman professor said it goes back to the Romans were absolutely uh, interested in enforcing international laws because they they didn't have the capacity necessarily to take over each and every nation or people or dialect or tribe in the world um, after having conquered them, but they needed to get them to agree to work together in coordination with the internationalism that they were bringing to the table so that they could have trade, so they could bring ships in and out, so they could have various uh, successful and ongoing trading economic partners in the world. And so that was what was meant by Pax Romana in the sense that if the legions were there to conquer, they were also there to build up fortresses and, and build up uh, markets and build up, uh, you know, the, 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 the civil society itself in order to be able to tax and profit from the international relations that, that they were ultimately going to, to, to establish. So the idea of building international laws is well and good, but it's not healthy for, obviously, for nation states it, 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 in many ways. It cuts off national sovereignty, and, and these are the issues that they'll discuss somewhat in this episode. And, and the professor, at, at being a good globalist and a good internationalist, will do his best to refute in any way any kind of criticism that internationalism is is fraught with difficulties. But you have to recognize that the the wheelhouse and the center of activity when it comes to globalism and internationalism, as we will see as it concerns the, the, the Club of Rome, is the city of Rome and the empire of Romanism and the actual, what, what he called the ecclesiastical establishment of international law, which was a continuation of the imperial Roman domination that you saw, uh, you know, with the, the empire of Rome. And then after the, the slow erosion of imperialism, Roman imperialism, you would end up with Roman ecclesiasticalism. So you, you, with the priestcraft of Rome, the priestcraft of Rome would continue on there, and they would insist that they have the hegemony and the pride of place of being the, the lead church in the world, the central uh, point of religious devotion. They would replace the, uh, the statue, the bronze statue of Zeus, and they would call it St. Peter. People would continue to come in and, and worship and kiss the, the statue, as they always had done. So many things in, in Rome would never change, especially with the priestcraft. 
with the syncretistic structures that they would use to basically absorb, as we saw with Constantine, they would absorb what was the, the Christian doctrine and the Christian writings, and they would just develop their own. They would just go on with, with St. Augustine, they would go on with, with their own theologians, and they would just carry on a Romanized Christianity, and they would continue to wear their, their robes, they would continue to wear their colors, they would continue to burn their incense and have their, their hallowed altars to Zeus and to the pantheon of gods, but they would just replace Isis and you know with, with Mary. I mean, they wouldn't really replace Isis. I mean, the statue of Isis would remain and would be considered a priceless uh, artistic artifact in in the Vatican. But the the statue of Isis was always worshipped as the goddess of heaven, the queen of heaven. And then it would come in and they would just rename the statue of Isis to be Mary. And so now Mary's the queen of heaven, and everyone worships and prays to her. And so the really religio cultic doctrine. And the mystery cult of Rome would continue to persist and, and stay, remain unchanged, and they would just begin to call Horus, the statues of Horus, or of, uh, of Jupiter, or of Hercules, they would just say that those were the depictions of Jesus Christ. Or they would take the, the images of Mithra, and they would just say that these are images of Jesus Christ. And, and, and so when you go through the Vatican, and you go through Rome, and you look at all the ancient statuary, and, the, and all the genius works uh, of the um, different Renaissance sculptors, they really carried on in in the image of Bacchus, and the image of, of Pan, and the image of the various uh, deities that were worshipped in Greek in Greek uh, history, in Greek uh, culture, and then later in Roman culture. These same pagan deities would just be become the, the different apostles of Jesus Christ. They would be renamed John, and Mark, and Luke, and so, and so when you're looking at all these uh, pagan images in Rome that are now Christianized, you're observing the, the continuation of Romanism as a religion, ultimately as an empire. So when we go back and we look at the Club of Rome, we must recognize that the Club of Rome is it is the attempt of the the Vatican to create it with their many papal knights and their their many which are ultimately, if you look behind many of the billionaires, uh, the fellow who owns Fox News, I and mean, many of the, the large uh, the, you know, economic titans are behind globalism, and they're really the, the original internationalists of the Knights of Malta. So these same men are going to be the papal knights who were always interested in internationalism. They had set up their own nation in Malta, they had their own passports and their own money. They set up the Vatican to be its own nation. I mean, the, the Vatican Hill there, the, the little city, is its own nation-state. So it gets to have its own money and its own diplomats and its own. In this tiny little city, it influences a lot of what is happening internationally with globalism. And you can see that you know the same thing is happening with the World Economic Forum. All these different constituent parts, the different vehicles and monolithic institutions that they, did, that they would develop for the purpose of creating internationalism. So this is all all this the, the UNESCO, the United Nations, all these different programs are being kicked off at this time and it's going to really at the center of it is going to be this Club of Rome. And the Club of Rome is going to be one of the main think tanks that's going to come out with this idea of limits to growth. So that the idea that in globalism there are limits to how much people uh, can eat and how much people can grow and how much you know people can travel and how much what people can do and ultimately we have to uh, take the planet away from and se separate globalism from 
national sovereignty. So nations are no longer sovereign to just do as they will in this arena, but they have to be subservient to this idea of, of global laws, global dictates, international norms, international statutes that are going to govern what nations can and can't do. And so it, it's not important necessarily to be, to be one who runs a nation, but when you're the ones who determine what the international laws are going to be that govern nations, then you're getting into this idea of global governance or a global government or a world order. So what we're going to see when we look at this podcast is this gentleman, Haro Hong Ju Ko, is going to try to tell us how great internationalism is and how wonderful it frees us and how much it, it makes our lives easier. But ultimately what we need to realize is that these men are determining that they have the hegemony and the sovereign dictatorship over the world and that they're going to give the rules of the road and they're going to define the speed limits and they're going to define the actual legal reality by which all the other nations in the world must submit. And so we're really, well, our question is not so much as does it make it easier to travel between nations and, and so on and so forth. My question is when does, how does the, the club of Rome arrive at the treaty of Rome, which has a lot to do with the European, uh, the, the European economic commission it would lead, lead to the United Nations, but ultimately, what, what gave them the right to determine that they would create international treaties by which all the rest of the world must be governed? Just like we saw with uh, when uh, Trump was in, in the presidency, he wouldn't go over to to the the, Fran the French Accords or whatever was the the, the 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 French Climate Accords or whatever it was. It, these are the kind of international treaties. It's it's wonderful to have to have a, a, an effort to and make the environment more clean and to have less pollution. But that's not the point. The point is that they're creating international treaties by which everyone else must be bound. And we are questioning by which authority does the Treaty of Rome or the Club of Rome or any of these Romans get to determine what the rest of the world is going to do? So let's listen to more of this interesting discussion. You know, when I was in college, uh, which is a while back. Uh, if I flew to uh, Europe uh, on vacation, I, I had to, um, uh, if, if I got there, if my luggage uh, were uh, missing, uh, I had no way to get it back. Um, I had to carry traveler's checks. Uh, if I landed in Paris and I wanted to go to Italy, I'd have to use a passport to get across. Um, uh, everything was difficult. Now you can fly, your uh, luggage is protected by the Warsaw Convention. Uh, if it's lost, uh, they're required to give you payment when you land. You can go to an ATM machine where money transfers are facilitated by international law. Um, your passport allows you to move in the Schengen area without restriction. You save uh, incredible amounts of time and uh, hassle. Uh, just because of the creation of these international law arrangements. But are there instances where international law does interfere with sovereignty and restrict, you know, a nation's, uh, you know, sovereign rights to, you know, enact its own policies and, uh, you know, carry out, uh, you know, its intended policies, uh, and perhaps that could con conflict with international law? Well, you know, most international law and treaties are like contracts, and we all enter contracts all the time. Um, and contracts restrain our freedom. So you guys um, signed up to go to Johns Hopkins. Uh, when you made that commitment, you agreed you weren't going somewhere else. But that opens the door for your full participation in the life of uh, great universities. So 
you surrender something and you get something. So you briefly mentioned uh, the United Nations and the Bretton Woods Agreement a little bit earlier. Um, so I just want to expand a little bit and clarify um, the role of the United Nations in the formation and the enforcement, which a lot of criticism, a lot of criticism of the United Nations is that there is no enforcement. Um, what that um, has that role that the United Nations has in international law, and additionally, what other international bodies are relevant in discussing international law. So uh, just think back to uh, the early twentieth uh, uh, century, where. Uh, we had a number of traumatic events. One was the Great Depression, and then the other was World War One and World War Two. So they decided to set up um, a Bretton Woods system that would prevent there from being more depressions, and they set up the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and the International Trade Organization, which has now become the WTO. And then they said uh, their other concern was about the scourge of war and the absence of human rights protection. And they set up a United Nations system and, um, at San Francisco. Um, and that's been the basis for most international organizations and many treaties uh, in the nearly 80 years since. So the professor is going to go on to say how great the United Nations and Bretton Woods system is after the Great Depression and World War One and World War Two, and how we are much better off with with it, and so on and so forth. But I'm going to have to just just disagree entirely with his with his whole. I guess that's why he's a Yale, you know, college professor, university professor there. Because ultimately, he's a globalist, he's an internationalist, he believes in these systems. And when you have to look back at the, uh, the situation with the Great Depression in 1929, ultimately, we had been on the Federal Reserve system since 1913. So by 1929, when it totally crashed, you have to remember, if you look up your history, it was Joseph P. Kennedy. And Joseph P. Kennedy was a really extraordinarily rich billionaire at the time, uh, so his wealth was staggering even for the era of 1929. And him and, and his compatriots were going to be directly involved with pulling the, the, the large lines of credit out of the stock market and precipitating the crash and the Great Depression of 1929. So, and if you look at Joseph P. Kennedy's history, he was a high-level Knight of Malta. He was a papal knight who served the papacy and who was under war with the Jesuits. And when it came time for them to use the Federal Reserve system and the power that they and the leverage they had there to collapse the economy in the United States, they went ahead and did it. And so, and you have to recognize that Joseph P. Kennedy is John F. Kennedy's father. And John F. Kennedy is the president who was shot famously and assassinated. And his father was the one who was one of the central players in creating the Great Depression. So when he said uh, that this professor gets on, he said, well, then they created the Bretton Woods system. And then they created the United Nations program. Like, who, who is that? Well, when we get down to really isolating who it is that they are that created these institutions, we have to get back to what we were looking at earlier in our discussion about the Club of Rome. And it's crucial that you look into the Club of Rome as what we're going to do today and that you learn more about it and understand who it was that were these treaty-making powers who decided that they could create this system of internationalism with the, with the World Trade Organization and the World Bank and the United Nations and so on and so forth. And they went ahead and did that. And, and of course, right at this point, you have to recognize, right at this point 
in American history when we would have this huge Great Depression, this huge economic collapse. We'd have starvation in America. Right at this point in time, the American experiment is over. Okay, the, our economy is so completely ruined and is so completely enthralled to this fiat currency, this Federal Reserve currency, that ultimately they're going to take away hard money at this time, so they're going to pull all gold and silver uh, currency, pretty much all, all the gold, or privately owned gold in America is going to be pulled, because you have to recognize that when America bankrupted in 1929 with the Federal Reserve System, ultimately we owed... Everything, just just as you do, as you can imagine, if you go and and, uh, and and buy a house, and then you get halfway through the payments, and you can't make the payments anymore, what happens? The bank keeps all the payments you made, and they take the house back. So you don't get your money back, and they take the house. So that's what happened in America. We lost all of our gold because we had to. We were in a in a bankruptcy, and we had forfeited all that 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 currency, that actual gold value. We had to pay back all the value, credit banking value that we had borrowed. Through this international banking system, through the Federal Reserve, we had to pay it back. So they came in and took what they wanted. They got all the gold, and this was under Roosevelt. And then we went to war with the Nazis. And you have to recognize that Joseph P. Kennedy was a Knight of Malta in America, a huge titan, a huge billionaire. But they have these uh, Knights of Malta guys everywhere. They're internationalists. They belong to an international order of papal, uh, papal knights. And wherever the country they come from, whatever language they speak, is irrelevant. So if you go over to Germany, where the Nazis are, are popping up with Hitler, you can see that Hitler was put up by Franz von Papen. And Franz von Papen is, let's all say it together, a Knight of Malta. So he's a brother co-conspirator. Hmm. He's a brother compatriot within the, Knight, the Knights of Malta to, to basically steer these sovereign nations, Germany, respectively, and America, and steer them in the direction that they want them to go according to their plans. And so Franz von Papen is not acting, he's not establishing Chancellor Hitler over there for the betterment of Germany, just as Joseph P. Kennedy isn't causing a massive economic collapse, starting the domino effect that would create the Great Depression. He didn't do that, Joseph P. Kennedy, Knight of Malta, he didn't do that in order to better, better the, the circumstances for the American people. Okay, this is a plan and an agenda of the Knights of Malta to steer these different countries into war. So, what's happening in Germany at that time? You know, they're facing hyperinflation, right? The Weimar Republic, hyperinflation. In 1929 in America, Great Depression. So, we have to recognize that these men, these very well-educated, they, they go to Yale, they go to Harvard, don't you know? They go to Oxford, Oxford men. They go to Stonyhurst, Jesuit College, right? They, these are the men who are being used to create globalism, internationalism today. And they're a part of an international order. Because you have to recognize that the Knights of Malta get their members from all over the world. They get their, their members out of Russia. You have to recognize that many of the men that were, uh, that were working around Stalin were Knights of Malta. I mean, Edmund P. Walsh, he was the high-level Jesuit leader that was out of Georgetown University. He met with Stalin. He went to Russia many times. Right? He was there at the Nuremberg trials. He's overseeing all of this. So that's really what we're trying to get at, guys. We're trying to get into the midst of this discussion about what is the nature of internationalism. I mean, this 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 fellow here, Johns Hopkins, on this podcast pointed out that it's the law of the seas. It's the law of the seas that governs these international regulations. So when we're talking about the law of the seas, this is not the law of the land. This is admiralty law. 
This is the admiralty law that governs ships that the pirates go by. Remember when you're talking about Captain Jack Sparrow, the, the code. we got to follow the code, right? Kind of the guidelines. We all follow the code, power code. This is admiralty law, the law of the sea, the law of the high seas that governs admiralty and ultimately is the, the constituent component, the underlying basis of military government. So that's what we're getting to. We're getting into some other levels of the subject matter here that you guys probably, if you've been dumbed down in America and you eat Doritos and watch The Simpsons, and you probably don't know any of this stuff, and you're probably not interested in it at all, but the point is, is that I have to lay this down on record. i got to get this podcast out there. i got to get this information available to people in the metadata, in the keyword search terms, in the, in the, in the keyword meta descriptions. When you guys are searching the, the, the internet, you're ultimately going to find that we're over here talking about these issues. And we're going to get into more about the European common market, the ECC, uh, the European, uh, the, the economic, uh, European economic community that led to the, the Treaty of Rome there in the 50s that would lead to the European Union. So the European Union itself is a constituent component of globalism. It's, it's taking all the different individual nations and they get to they get to sacrifice a little bit in order to gain a little bit of, of becoming a federated state. And they all get to give up. They all get to use the euro now. And, you know, so th- th- it just limits their ability to have economic freedom. They're on a fiat currency, just like America. They just got some pot metal, some old cadmium silver-plated fake coins with the Pope's face on it. I mean, there's no more gold and silver circulation, right? We can't have hard money. We gotta have, we gotta have fake you know, bitcoins. You know, cryptocurrencies are just digits out there, and you just you believe that. You know, but the idea of owning gold and silver as money it doesn't seem like it's coming back. So that's really what we're getting at. We're getting about getting back to the nature of national sovereignty, economic freedom, and individual liberty. And these are the kind of ideas that are part and parcel of democracy, guys. American democracy. Little r republicanism, where we all get a vote. And each of us individually, despite whether I'm in a wheelchair or whether I have a lot of money, we all get one vote to steer the direction of the country. That's democracy. And that's the thing that they're ultimately trying to destroy. That's, that's why, as you're seeing the collapse of economic freedom in 1929, they're going to remove all the gold out of, out of circulation. They're going to give us this greenback fiat paper currency, which is like monopoly money. And now we're printing trillions. Today, 2021, we're printing trillions, right? Trillions and trillions of these fake monopoly monies. So we're we're getting to the point where we're going down into the void, the void of economic despair and misery So, in as much as we're facing hyperinflation, just like the the German Weimar Republic did. And remember, the the Second Reich, the Weimar Republic, was a Republican and a Democratic political venture. So that in as much as it was a Protestant Reich, it was a, a time when a Kaiser Wilhelm, we're talking about Otto von Bismarck, and these were men who were trying to establish German sovereignty, German nationalism, German independence, and to create economic freedom and build up scientific research and build up their, their they had the greatest universities in the world. But on the other side of that, you had Hegel, and you had Nietzsche, and you had all these, and you had Marx, and you had all these German philosophers who are who are really coming from imperialism. They're coming from the point of view of the old world power structure. They're not interested in this newfangled democracy and, and the people being empowered. They, they, these are the men who 
who are fighting on behalf of the princes and the aristocracy and the, and the nobility. And so they really want to return the world to serfdom. I mean, that's why Marx worked so hard to try to destroy the middle class and destroy the family and return everyone to becoming animals and, 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 and we beat each other over the head and take each other's women in common. And That's the whole nature of Marxism is to destroy the Enlightenment. It's the counter-reformation. It's to return again the darkness of the, the Dark Ages and the, and the tyranny and the despotism of the monarchs and the imperialism of Europe. So that's that's what American freedom was all about. American freedom changed the world in 1776 because we said, you know what? Each of us patriots is going to get a vote and we're all going to choose what our fate is. We're not going to want to listen to the sovereign king or the prince or or whoever the pope puts up there to coordinate. Who, you know, like down in Mexico, they tried to put um, Emperor Maximilian III. They just tried to stand up some, some you know, some Rothschild guy, right? Some kind of e- elitist, titled guy. They just tried to send him down. It wasn't he like the son of Napoleon or something. They just tried to send some guy down there to ultimately just become the king and the sovereign. Everyone would kiss his ring and do what he says. But the people, but like Benito was, the people of Mexico revolted. And in many ways, that's where the Monroe Doctrine is going to come into play because we don't want these powers of imperialism, these monarchical, elitist powers over here in our in our hemisphere. We're trying to protect sovereign nationalism. We're trying to protect popular government here where it was established in 1776. So all these programs that are trying to destroy the economy of America, to bring down the national uh, freedom, the, the sovereignty of the people to dictate their own future, the populism, the popular government, of uh, the democratic, democratically elected uh, self-government of America, all these powers that are trying to bring that down are the powers of imperialism. They're the same powers that have always been. They're the changing shape. They're becoming sustainable development programs. They're becoming they're becoming interested in saving the environment. They're the ones who are creating all these laws of, of internationalism by which all the nations have to obey, right? These are the same imperialists who, who tried to ultimately own the world before. To try to keep everything, you know, it was, you weren't allowed to teach any slaves to read. But ultimately, those slaves would read in America. They would get a hold of the 1611 King James Bible, and they would read it, and it would change that, and it would change the world. And that's, that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with people who want to return us to the darkness and the despotism of serfdom. And that's what you see with Antifa. They're just running around, they all sleep in the park and do, do meth all night. That's why they're acting so crazy and geeked out, because they're, they're all on meth, and they're all down there, like, with their plastic shields, trying to, trying to fight the power and bring down the federal courthouse and they're just they're just returning to the chaos of nihilism and anarchy so they're they're rejecting all the the benefits that western civilization has developed like indoor plumbing like get a shower man here's some dial here's some irish spring soap clean yourself up quit doing drugs and take advantage of the freedom but they're not interested in that they're only interested in self-destruction for themselves and for everyone else too so all this is part and parcel. These idea viruses like Marxism and Antifa and Black Lives Matter, there's going to be more, too. There are going to be more platforms and more campaigns. These more ideological weapons are going to be developed. They're coming from Soros, and these are the faces that we can name, right? These are the individuals who are the international elite who are pushing out, paying for all these the, the different levels of chaos in America. And so now we have the Biden freak show, and, and they're all in there. They're Antifa, all the, all the freak shows, all the different, the uh, anti-colonialists, if you will, the ones who hate America, they're in there. They're trying to find a way to cut America's head off from within inside the White House, right? And where did the, all the premise of all these ideological tools come from? All this schooling, all this pedagogy, uh, this anti-Americanism, where did it all come from? Well, it was all stirred up 
by men who were instituting the colleges in the first place. You got to remember, like Harvard and Princeton were originally Bible colleges. They were training missionaries, guys. Princeton and Harvard and even Yale, they were Protestant Bible seminaries. They were sending out missionaries throughout the world. What are they today? <laughs> they're no longer Bible seminaries. But now they're seminaries of leftism and Luciferian devil worship and transgendered like perversion and every every kind of destabilizing, eroding, and corrosive social ideology you can imagine in the world, right? Is all coming out of there. And ultimately, these people and this kind of teaching is coming from the academic elites. Okay, so these are the ones who are going to set up these colleges long ago and begin to take them over uh, for communism, for Marxism. And then, of course, communism and Marxism are just tools. They're just idea viruses, guys. They're just ideological weapons, which are weapons of the mind against the people. You know, they, 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 they get addicted to these ideas. They get involved and in, 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 in gross. People who have stronger... Uh, intellectual initiative, can, can push these ideas, can brainwash people with these ideas in colleges. Regular happy kids go to go off to college and they come back and, and they're all with the mohawks and the green hair and, and they're ready to, to burn down the forest in order to save the environment. Because they're the, the environmental liberation front. Yeah, they're going to go and burn down a Chevy dealership. And when they did that in California, they, they burnt down a huge forest too. But they don't care. They're just, they're just, the, the, the idea of an idea virus, ideological poison like that, is to create behavior that's self-destructive. So, of course, you have these guys who are trying to tattoo their eyeballs. I mean, they got tattoos all over their body. They want to tattoo their eyeballs. They want to do anything they can to destroy the actual nature of, of what they have here in America. So... As we're going forward here, we have to really uncover a lot of this discussion. We have to go into another level here. We have to do what all the other podcasts are refusing to do. I see one here that's about making recipes. And I see here one that's about, oh, the Davos, Radio Davos podcast. It's all about how the Davos people are, are taking over there in Switzerland. They're going to have a new world order for the environment and so on and so forth. So we need to get into this idea of environmentalism and this idea of the planned decline of the West, especially America. So let's let's get into it here. And ultimately, we're going to have to have a reading here from the Modern History Project on the origin of the Club of Rome. And, and we'll go back to this, this uh, professor some more later. And he really gets into a wider a criticism of, of Trump and how Trump really brought disrespect to America from the global order and how Trump really wanted the, you know, expected the international system of global governance and international laws to really give him, you know, a break and to, and to allow him to do things that others weren't allowed to do. And yeah, he goes into this whole criticism of Trump and, and it's really fascinating because now I'm looking at like Biden. And I guess Biden brings back the respect of the international community to America, right? After Afghanistan and everything. It's, it's despicable. This guy, we're, we're listening to this professor, but this is what you're going to get when you go to Yale, when you go to these, these universities. You're going to get this really like complex, overly uh, explained uh, reasons why internationalism is good and, 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 and Orange Man is bad. All right. Let's, let's just read here. Modern History Project, The Origin of the Club of Rome. The Conference on Conditions of World War was held from June 12th through the 19th in 1965 at the Villa Cervelloni in Bellagio, Italy, sponsored by the Congress of 
Cultural Freedom with a grant from the Ford Foundation and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. A group of 21 scholars, writers, and scientists from all over the world met to define the concepts of world order. A segment for their report by Helio Jaguarib said, quote-unquote, the establishment of world order depends not only on its intrinsic desirability and viability, but also on the support of men and groups who decide to dedicate themselves to the completion of such a goal as increasing sectors of developed and underdeveloped societies begin to realize the urgent necessity of world order, the viability of its establishment, and the fact that it can be achieved by adopting measures which are reasonable in themselves, none of the governments will be able to escape public pressure for establishing world order. It is incumbent upon the intellectuals to play the decisive role in the formation of pressure groups in favor of world order. The establishment of world order demands the, no, the mobilization of groups dedicated to international pressure for the gradual implantation of that world order. The negotiated establishment of world order is theoretically possible and practically feasible since, in the last analysis, the probable effects of nuclear conflagration have made way an impractical alternative to the peaceable solution of contemporary problems. Three years later, in April 1968, a think tank of financiers, scientists, economists, politicians, head of state, industrialists from ten different countries, again met at Rockefeller's private estate in Bellagio, Italy, at the request of Aurelio Pesky. The Italian industrialists who closed with close ties to Fiat and Olivieri Corporation, he claimed to have solutions for world peace and prosperity, which could be accomplished through world government. The Club of Rome, C-O-R, was established with the membership of 75 prominent scientists, industrialists, economists from 25 countries, which along with the Bilderberg Organization have become one of the most important foreign policy arms of the Roundtable Group. Okay? So if you've been following this, com- you know, we'll just pause there. If you've been following this podcast for a while, then that, that jargon and that, that little write-up and that piece of literature that I decided to read will begin to make sense to you. And really, the roundtable groups really represent Milner, uh, Milner and the Cecil Rhodes Secret Society that was out of Britain. And so you can see that they, they played a key role in World War I and World War II. The British Empire did. And in World War I, they had the exclusive honor of going down with their new uh, steel Navy, they had a steam, steam-powered Navy at that point, and they went down to the Ottoman Empire and destroyed it in World War I. That's what, that's what the British Empire did. And they took the, the province that they destroyed, the Ottoman Empire, and they broke it up into all the different districts that you have now, which is like Turkey, and you have Saudi Arabia, and Iran, and Iraq, and, and uh, all, you know, Jordan, and, and all the different countries there. Uh, and so the point being that they had the preeminence uh, in establishing world order at that point, and they decided it was time for the Ottoman Empire to go, and the caliphate was no more. And so now you have Afghanistan, and you have Pakistan, and you have all these different nations who used to be the, the Ottoman Empire for 1,500 years, right? So ultimately, you have to look carefully at the, the British Empire as it still exists today, and to begin to look at what is the, the, it, it doing, what is the nature of the roundtable groups. And they're beginning to create other organizations, like we said, the Club of Rome and the Bilderberg environment. Of course, now you have to put on your conspiracy theory hat because we said that. Many of the Club of Rome executives were drawn from NATO, and they have been able to formulate a lot of what NATO 
claims are its policies. So the, uh, through Lord Carrington, the, the, now we've got to go back to the British Empire. You still have to have lords, right? Lord Carrington can't just be Mr. Carrington. He has to be Lord because he has a title because he's a part of an empire. They were able to split NATO into two factions, left-wing political group, whose doctrine was formed on the basis of Pesky's book, Human Quality, and its former military alliance. The first Club of Rome conference in the U.S. was in 1969, where the, the American branch was organized as the American Association of the Club of Rome. Among its members were Norman Cousins, uh, Chairman of Planetary Citizens, John Naisbitt, author of Megatrends, Amory Lovins, speaker at Windstar, John Demers New Age Center, Betty Friedman, founding president of NOW, Gene Houston and Hazel Anderson, New Age authors and speakers, Robert Anderson and Harold Cleveland, uh, Cleveland, Council on Foreign Relations, and the Aspen Institute. So you can see what we're looking at here, guys. I mean, th this program is for depopulation. That's what we're going to get into. I mean, we have to read through all this crap, but when we break this down, it's going to be an effort to return the Earth to its previously pristine state and to get rid of all human activity. Okay, that's, that's the name of the game here. And the, of course, with that, the Club of Rome put out its first report in 1972 called The Limits to Growth. This is global growth. And so they get to d determine what everyone else gets to do. They're, they're over there saying, look, we, we're smarter, and we decided that uh, we're elites over here with the Council on Foreign Relations and the Bilderbergs and so on, and we get to tell you all that there are limits to how much you can grow. And we're going to limit how much you can grow because we determined the environment is our environment. And we're going to, we're going to protect it. We're going to do what we want. And so this idea of environmental uh, fanaticism that you're developing, it really brings these people into a, a, a state of ecstatics. So you have these people that, who are religiously, fundamentally ecstatic in their zeal to make sure that humans uh, as a disease and a, and a polluting virus are, are limited and, and, and they're brought, you know, we... we we limit population. We have population controls. So you can no longer reproduce. You can no longer have babies. You can no longer just be a natural part of Earth. You have to just, you have to now be, you consider yourself, you put a mask on, you're a contagious thing. You're, you're, you're a germ vector, right? So let's look at the limits to growth. The first book titled Limits to Growth was published in 1972 and dealt with the problem of worldwide overpopulation. It stated that if the world's consumption patterns and population growth continued to the same rate as it did at the time, the earth would strike its limits within a century. The book sold 12 million copies in 27 languages. And we have a quotation from the book. We believe, in fact, that the need will quickly become evident for social innovation to catch technical change, for radical reform of the institutions and political processes at all levels, including the highest that of world polity. And since intellectual enlightenment is without effect, it is not also political. The Club of Rome will encourage the creation of a world forum where statesmen, policymakers, and scientists can discuss the dangers and hopes for the future global system with the constraints of formal intergovernmental negotiation. For the most part, the Club of Rome main office at 193 Risenerd Landstrat in Hamburg, Germany, right? Of course, the Club of Rome would be in Germany, right? Functions as a research institute of economic, political, and social problems and claims that, quote-unquote, there is no other viable alternative to the future survival of civilization than a new global community under a common leadership. That's what their website claims. Quote-unquote, the Club of Rome's mission is to act as a global catalyst of change that is free of any political and ideological and business interest. The Club of Rome, it contributes to the solution of what it calls the world problematic. It, it, the complex set of the most crucial problems, political, social, blah, blah, blah. 
So these guys, this is what we're dealing with. This is the undercurrent of the the progenitors and the offspring and the next generation, the next iteration of Illuminati powers. Okay, so the Illuminati powers were an international organization that had many members from all the different courts of Europe or anywhere that was civilized, really. They, they planned to control the different various, the czar and, and all the different individuals who were, uh, who were in the work of governing Europe became uh, the mission of the Illuminati to ultimately control them, to buy them off, to manipulate them, to have them commit some kind of egregious crime, uh, to, to, you know, to, to, to engage in orgies, whatever it took to get these people to, to get together and to create a singular order out of these different various courts. So you have all these different guys. You got the king of, of Italy, you got the, the king of, of England, the king of France, you got the czar in Russia, you got all these different factors, all these different men vying for power, and ultimately they wanted to unifer, universalize all these different constituent governing components into one format. And it was quite an ambitious goal. And you can think about it, that's what happened with Freemasonry too. At one point there was just individual separate Freemason lodges throughout France and Germany and, 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 and England. And then eventually they would organize, the Illuminati would, they would organize all these lodges under a grand lodge and a grand master who they would all have to answer to. So it's this, this process of making everything into a hierarchy, every, everything into a channel of control that really distinguishes the, the mechanism of the Illuminati. And of course they, they went underground, they changed their names, but their program, their agenda, and their move towards absolute totalitarian control is always the same. Right. So when they say limits to growth, they're talking about for you, for the peasants, for the, the serfs. You can no longer really grow, but of course when it comes to the Ford Foundation or the Oppenheimer Fund or any of these huge economic giants out there that have left their, like for instance, Cecil Rhodes left an enormous, incomprehensible fortune of, of diamond mines and, and so on and so forth to the express purpose of creating this international world order that they're talking about. And I think it's fascinating that behind the scenes you have these men like Joseph P. Kennedy, and then you have others like Cecil Rhodes and Lord Alfred Milner, right, in, in, in Britain, and they have others over there in Germany like Franz von Papen. The point is that all these different men over in, in America, in the South, in the Confederacy, we had Albert Pike. Okay, and if you look at all of these men, they were all belong to a single organization as papal knights, as knights of the sovereign order of St. John, the, the Knights of Malta, as they're called. And this is an international order who controls banking, who controls a lot of things, and people don't necessarily recognize what it is. And it's not an international order based on freedom and democracy and popular government. It's an international order based on absolutism, ultramontane fanaticism, and pope worship. So the, and these guys are the aristocracy of the lords and the nobility of Europe. Okay, so they're not interested in human freedom. They're not, when they say limits of growth, they're talking about the limits of the, the wider uh, populace, the wider society. So when they, when they want to cut back overpopulation, they're talking about, wow, the, the effects of Western civilization and the Reformation and independence and the U.S. Constitution, the effects of all that have been massive growth of populations around the world. In so much as that now people have to be worried about, like, oh my God, is the world overpopulated? That's the kind of thinking that they have you in. 
instead of looking at the world as the Lord's world, as, as, a, as, a, as a place that the Lord created humans and, and a home for humanity, now you're looking at it as a place that is a ward of the international elite and a place where they're determining, well, there's too many people here using too many resources and they don't like it. They don't like the effect of the middle class, right? There never was a middle class before. You just had all the, the serfs who couldn't live past 29 years of age. And you had all the, the knights and the royals up in the, in the palaces with their horses and their armor. And that's it. There was no middle class. There was no this middle range of people who make a few hundred thousand a year, maybe a million a year, and they do really well. And, and they're, and they're, you know, the, this middle class economic, the, the practical success of it has to be done away with. So here is an example that we'll give of the modern day uh, circumstance that we're dealing with here with the elite, with the, the, uh, the, the movers and shakers of international law and global governance and how they're moving quite ahead. I mean, they're, they're no longer just representing the United States and Britain and France. I mean, these guys are representing the global estate, right? They're representing the G20 summit, right? And, who, and when we voted for these idiots or when they stole the elections from us, did we authorize them to go meet at a G20 summit in order to, to dictate? I mean, are, are they like the elected representatives of the world, world, uh, World democracy, or what is happening here? So they can see that it's a, it's a betrayal of the people. It's a betrayal of national sovereignty, and it's a sacrifice of claims of, of national freedom in order to to make us all exposed to this global fiefdom that we're all being uh, submitted to. So let's go ahead here. This is the Miami Herald. The latest on the Group of Twenty summit taking place in Rome. World leaders are capping their their day of. Group of 20 Summitry on Saturday with a gala dinner. President Joe Biden of the U.S. and Felix uh, Chishideki of the Democratic Republic of Congo have discussed a U.S. broker deal between pharmaceutical maker Moderna and the African Union to make 110 million doses of COVID-19 uh, COVID vaccine available to the continent. Uh, Chishideki is also chair of the African Union. The White House says the leaders may met Saturday on the margins of the Group of 20 leaders summit being held in Rome. Under the arrangement, the U.S. will defer delivery of about 33 million doses of Moderna's vaccine originally intended for the U.S. so that the African Union can buy them instead. Africa and its 1.3 billion people remain the least vaccinated region of the world. Uh, also in Rome, the landmark international tax deal won support Saturday. So they're trying to develop this program for international taxes. It will make international business taxation more equitable and help governments fund their recoveries from the pandemic. The head of the international organization oversaw the negotiation said, Matthias Corman, the, the secretary general of the, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, said that the deal will, quote unquote, make international tax arrangements fairer and work better in a digitalized and globalized economy. So you can see where we're going here, guys. They're not really being around the bush. We go back down here, Janet Yellen. The group of 20 leaders have unanimously endorsed a global minimum tax on corporations and a move being hailed by the U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet L. Yellen as benefiting American businesses and workers. So th this is a state of madness. And this is what they wanted to return to. They wanted to return to this, this status quo under Biden. And they, they, they moved heaven and earth. They, they rigged elections in dozens and dozens of counties. They manipulated votes through stuffing ballots and using printed out ballots. And, they, and, they, and of course, they paid everyone up. 
Zuckerberg went in there with his billions and billions, and he paid everyone off, and they created the election result that they wanted. So they could continue on with the program here. And that's really what's the most disturbing for the American people who can read, people who are literate, people who are interested in, in maintaining their constitutional protections. They have to question now that these international leaders are leading us to the slaughter. And at this point, we're at a state of development within the plan of internationalism and global governance so, so much as that we have really lost track of what the, the nature of freedom and independence especially when it comes to the Declaration of Independence and what it really means in a, in a geopolitical environment. A Declaration of Independence in a geopolitical environment is a, is a declaration of nationalism to say that we are no longer going to be uh, tied to you with any kind of political or economic or uh, you know, treaty or any kind of prerogative that ties us and binds us to you and, and, whatever you're, and what you're doing there in Europe. Same thing with the Monroe Doctrine. It was a separation and a repudiation of monarchialism and the despotism that imperialism brings in so much as that they were trying to use their banking uh, powers to manipulate uh, popular governments in South America. And of course, the, the Monroe Doctrine was designed to protect popular governments and democratically held institutions in South America. And as we go on here, we're looking at the EIR. This is an EIR, a special article that was written, um, uh, it was uh, volume 11, number uh, uh, 8, February 28, 1984. And the, the article is called The Club of Rome Attempts to Take Over the Vatican. And what we're really getting into here when we look at this is we're, we're, we're recognizing that early on people could see that the program for globalism was being enacted as they began to create all these different international organizations in the United Nations and the World Health Organization and the World Bank and the World Trade Organization and on and UNESCO and on and on and on, as they built these different institutions of world control, there was people that were recognizing the dangers. And this is at a point now where Pope John Paul is meeting with a Turkish terrorist and expressing, you know, his concern, blah, 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 1983. But let's just read part of the article, or uh, part of the article. Malthusians on the warpath. To understand the significance of the shift which Pope John Paul is undergoing, it is necessary to go back at least to the winter of 1981. It was in February of that year that the Malthusian Cabal, which is located in the Roman Catholic Church, primarily within the Jesuit order, and in the non-Catholic world, largely among Anglicans and the pagan groups called the Humanist International, went public with the intention to destroy the Church. The point at which at issue was population policy. The code name developed by the Club of Rome to wipe out billions of non-white peoples by the year 2000 in order to save natural resources, quote-unquote. In an article entitled Population Growth and Global Security Toward an American Strategic Commitment, which appeared in the January February 1981 issue of the Humanist magazine, Dr. Stephen Mumford put it this way, Pronatalistic forces who encourage births must be stopped. We must adopt the anti-natalistic policies that we are suggesting for rapidly growing developing countries. All government policies and laws concerning childbirth must be changed. It is fair to say that the issuing and the teaching of the church, the Vatican has effectively, effectively thwarted the development of a 
and successful imp implementation of population policies worldwide, with the exception of the People's Republic of China. Of course, this was all happening. The, P the, the CCP took over China in 1949, and so it's all part and parcel. Of course, the London control of Hong Kong and was supposed to carried for another 50 years, but they turned it over, and of course, the international, who else is capable of making sure that China would be, become a Chinese communist entity, uh, other than the, the, the people that are pushing this exact agenda here. The only hope for the American Catholic Church and the American people is that the American Church break away from the Roman Church, quote-unquote. And we'll just continue with the, with the article. At the time Mumford wrote these words, he was working on a project commissioned by the Georgetown Center for Strategic and International Studies, the world-famous think tank of America's most prominent Jesuit university. He was also collaborating closely with Episcopalian Cyrus Vance, one of the primary sponsors of the Carter administration's Global 2000 policy for world depopulation and Vance's cohorts at the American Association for the Club of Rome. Within months of the, the publication of Mumford's article, the most serious shots in the Malthusians' campaign were fired on May 13th in St. Peter's Square, a town, a, a known Turkish terrorist. A Turkish terrorist assassin put several bullets into Pope John Paul II miraculously the pontiff survived, but the conspiracy which surrounded the assassination attempt did not halt as EIR's founder and leading U.S. statesman Lyndon LaRoche identified in EIR that June, June 2nd, 1982 was the Anglican Church functioning as a coordinating arm of the Ecumenical Venice sponsored conspiracy that stood at the center of the assassination plot. Anglican primate Robert Runcy was at the time uh, an international campaign in favor of the global 2000 genocide plan in cahoots with the Jesuits and the Club of Rome and the Anglicans. LaRoche pointed out that he knew very well that the murder of Joe, uh, Pope John Paul II would lead to the schism which they needed to implement depopulation. The Club of Rome, just continue on down. The Club of Rome, founded by an alliance of British gen genocidalists, Italian black nobility, and Russian racists, had created itself a niche within the Vatican bureaucracy and was making progress by inches in eroding the Vatican commitment to the sacredness of human life on the issues of technological progress, depopulation, and even euthanasia. In the eyes of Justicia at Pax, run by the Jesuits, blatant spokesmen of depopulation such as Eleanor Mazzini were ensconced while LaRoche representatives were working in Rome toward the founding conference of the Club of Life in October 1982. They became aware of regular meetings between occurring between Club of Rome representatives and Vatican representatives. And we go on down some more from the standpoint of the church policy, the opening to the to the terrorists, Redibi, the Pope not only blah, 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 the Pope met not only Agha, the terrorist there, but also the head of the Red Brigades, Omoretti and others. An important stage in the shift impressed particularly by the Society of Jesus toward a religiosity which is fundamentalist, fanatical, and an Eastern stamp. Father Gianni Baguette Bozo, the theologian of the Catholic New Left, writes that political violence in Italy did not rise from banal motives. It has had an impulse of the absolute, therefore a strong religiosity. It is religious potentiality, which has gone to the roots of existence. And blah, blah, blah. So you can see that these guys are totally... 
totally enwrapped in the struggle to make sure that the Club of Rome is, and of course, what it really indicates here is that when Pope John Paul II was shot, that he immediately began to change his behavior. He, he began to move in the direction they wanted him to do. They began to meet with the people that they wanted him to meet with and to move forward the policies that that the, the Jesuits and the Club of Rome wanted to move forward. So I'll add this article into the uh, into the the show notes here, so you can take a look at it. And we'll read on. Here, there's another little section. The Roman Curia and the New Babylon. The Curia is the base of the papal government, the structure in which the Church of Rome is organized and governed. August 6, 1967, Pope Paul VI reformed the Curia. One of the most important in motivations of Pope Paul VI's reforms was to limit the, the power of the oligarchy over the Vatican. The nobility, in fact, boasts of a very real hereditary prerogatives. The Massimo family, which traces its lineage back to the Roman Empire, has the hereditary title of superintendent of the Vatican post office, while the office of prince attendant to the pontifical throne, the singular personage who stands at the Pope's right during papal and ceremonies wearing black velvet breeches, buckle shoes, and a sword is by tradition entrusted to the member of the Torleone and the Colonna families. Moreover, the control of the black nobility, the families whose titles predate the formation of Italy as a nation over Vatican finances is notorious. So we're, this is a fascinating article, and really what it's pointing out that that the, the power families and the power elite have been established and ensconced there in Sicily and Italy uh, for in Rome for much longer than even the Roman Catholic Church existed. So some of these guys trace their families back to the the pre-church, to the, to the Roman uh, the families who controlled imperial Rome and who were who were the people who were senators and who were vying to become uh, dictators and who were vying to become the next emperor of Rome. And so you can see that the, the, the move towards the Club of Rome, towards limiting the population of the planet, is ultimately a Malthusian plan at, at its very core because ultimately they're interested only in destroying the populace, the plebs, they're interested in limiting the ability, you know, they want to cut off all the, the uh, it's, it's eugenics, so everyone out there who is low-born, common, uh, you know, just white trash, if you will, out there, needs to be uh, to get the vaccine, or needs to have an abortion, or maybe you should go have your, your tubes tied so you really can't reproduce, because if you're adding to the, 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 the new babies and the new, new births on the planet, then we need to change the rules about that. We need to, to have more abortions. We need to have more, you know, things that kill babies, right? We, we need less babies, because they're killing the earth. Because humans are, are such a virus. And see, you have all these women now who are pregnant and they'll go get the the, um, the vaccine I've been hearing. And, and then, of course, the, the children, the, the, when they're pregnant in utero, the baby, the fetus will die because you just gave it a toxic, poisonous shot into your system. And um, some of these women who whose babies are dying in utero are also dying later on, too, from because the vaccines are, are ultimately a depopulation mechanism. And I hate to be the one to bear the bad news and to, to you know, to bring this out, of course. And you can recede back into your cognitive dissonance because of the sheer terror that these ideas are going to provoke in you. It's, uh, it's intolerable. It's unacceptable. It, it can't be true. It has to be conspiracy theory. I just want to go back and watch the Super Bowl and eat popcorn. That's you. 
Okay. So these realities are going to ultimately consume you and they're ultimately going to be, you know, come crashing like a tidal wave into your reality and you will not be able to rely on your cognitive dissonance to save you anymore and keep you in your comfort zone. But ultimately you have to accept that these, these ideas and these particular threats that we're outlining in this podcast are very serious and they're very real. So now we're going to find that the European Union has donned this new geopolitical dynamic as a federated state, in some ways mimicking the conjoined power and joint strength of the United States, which are really the United Nations, because remember, the original colonies were, were nations. They were independent nations. And only later on were they joined together into one larger nation. And this federalization, this federalism of these different nations into constituent parts, into an empire, is exactly the same kind of formation that the European Union is taking. And ultimately, they have their own euro, they have their own their own financial uh, system, and they have their own, uh, and they're developing, uh, little by little, their own military, uh, you know, initiative. And they're starting to bring that up. And if you do a little search, you can see that the discussions about a new European military are underway. So in order to look a little bit more closely at the European Union, in order to understand the nature of the Club of Rome, we have to go back to the Treaty of Rome, which was the original founding document there in the 50s that would lead to the, the ECB, it would lead to the European Economic Community, and would lead to ultimately the European Union itself. And so these are, these are all treaties and legal documents that are turning these countries from independent nation states into a larger imperial structure, just like we saw previously in Europe was the Holy Roman Empire. And this is kind of what you're seeing now. And, of course, one of the nations in the European Union is the Vatican, right? The Vatican has its own nation. And each, each, uh, each uh, period of years, uh, one of the nations gets to be the lead nation, the presidential nation, the head nation of, all of the European Union. You can see that soon the European Union will put the Vatican as the lead nation with the Pope as the lead head and president of the European Union. And when this happens, you'll see the, the full uh, intentional... Uh, planning and mechanism of the, the the imperial beast that the European Union is designed to be. So in order to look a little more closely at that, we need to look at uh, another man who is a Knight of Malta, Mario Draghi, and we're going to discuss him and his place in the as an international elite and his uh, his ideas about globalism. And uh, now he's become he used to be the president of the European Union and the European Council and now he's becoming the president of the European Bank so he's going to be the 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 international he's going to be the the international banker over the European Union so we need to pay attention within our mandate within our mandate the ECB is ready to do whatever it takes to preserve the euro and believe me, it will be enough. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And you just heard Mario Draghi speaking back in 2012 when he was president of the European Central Bank, uttering one of the most famous phrases in EU history, a phrase credited with saving the euro. 
Fast forward to today, and Draghi is Italy's new Prime Minister, tasked once again with doing whatever it takes, this time to lead his country through the pandemic and into economic recovery. We'll talk more about Draghi and his likely impact on Italy and the EU in just a moment. It's a buona sera to our special guest this week, Jacopo Baragazzi, our senior EU reporter who's also here in Brussels. Hi, Jacopo. Ciao, buona sera. So, great to have you with us, and we have uh, called you in in large part because you know the new Italian Prime Minister pretty well, Mario Draghi, who is uh, taking over in a very broad-based government, former president of the European Central Bank, of course. Jacopo, tell us a bit about him. What kind of a person is he? And, you know, how did he kind of rise through the ranks to get to where he is today? Mario Draghi is, first of all, somebody who is uh, pretty used to take decisions on his own. Is a man who was an orphan of uh, both parents at the age of 16, and uh, who had to become an adult pretty quickly. And so this has uh, turned him uh, into this pretty amazing figure uh, in Italian uh, politics, because he's possibly the most political of all the technocrats. And the definition I heard today of the government that he has just formed is that is the first uh, government uh, in Europe that is uh, a technocratic populist government, a kind of experiment of a mixture. What does that mean? Meaning that is uh, a mixture between uh, some technocratic figures, experts uh, who come from uh, the academia or from uh, enterprises, and figures uh, from uh, some of the populist uh, slash far right parties. Uh, so it's this particular kind of mixture. If we have uh, a government where we have uh, members of the Five Right uh, League, the Lega, and then we still have uh, the last survivors of uh, the former anti-establishment movement, the Five Stars, then we have the more institutional Democratic Party, and uh, again figures coming from different experiences outside of politics. Mm. And so, once again, it seems that uh, Italy proposes itself as a kind of political laboratory. Mm. Yeah, and we'll see how the experiment plays out. Can you place him on the political spectrum? I mean, do we know, as you say, he obviously has good political instincts, he's used to working inside politics, but he made his career as, well, ultimately as a central banker. Can we say, you know, where he stands politically? Once, in an interview a few years ago, he said that he's a liberal socialist. Those who met him when he was studying at MIT, there was recently an interview with a fellow guy who met him while he was studying, and he said he had the impression that he was not a true left-winger. Mm. But Mario Draghi was educated by the Jesuits, he's a churchgoer, so he's more a kind of a moderate, in the same interview, he said that uh, his political views don't match with any kind of radicalism. But again, at the same time, today in his speech in the Senate, one of the few quotes that was there was a quote from the Pope. Mm. Jacopo, I think uh, you've spoken to Draghi on at least one occasion. I believe you met him on the tube, right? <laughs> tell, tell, us, tell, tell us what happened there. What was he like as a person, you know, when you engage with him? Uh, he was a uh, um, managing director of Goldman Sachs. But uh, Draghi has this personal style, uh, always very humble. There have been pictures in newspapers in the last years of him going to the supermarket, for example. And there's a picture of him checking the prices. 
And, uh, and <laughs> so when I met him, first of all, it was weird to see such a hierarchical figure of Goldman Sachs in the tube. Mm. And secondly, he was there, as usual, without an overcoat, because Draghi usually doesn't wear overcoats. But since that I, I regularly met him, at a certain point I asked him whether he wanted to go on air, I used to be a, a producer at the CNBC Europe, whether he wanted to come on air, and he was very politely rejecting my request. I also got in touch with him when I was chasing his undergraduate thesis, because uh, he wrote a thesis where it was before the Euro, but it was a thesis where basically, as far as we know, because nobody actually got access to the thesis, he was describing uh, setting up a single currency or something crazy. And so since I've been chasing uh, these thesis for a long time, at a certain point, I wrote him a letter and I asked him, please, I know that one of the few copies of the thesis is uh, in your office, can you give it to me? And uh, very politely, once again, he rejected my request. Okay, well, sounds like he's good at, at saying no, but saying no politely, yeah. um, which I guess comes in handy in politics. Matt, you also met him uh, during his time as European Central Bank president, which is, of course, where he really made his name with the whatever-it-takes speech, which was credited with a, a key role in, in saving the euro. Uh, what did you make of him? What did you make of his tenure as ECB president? Well, I'm also a Jesuit, as you know. So, okay, it's uh, also very moderate. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. No, all kidding aside, I thought that he came in with a lot of expectations and also a lot of doubts about whether an Italian was the right person to lead the ECB at a time that the euro faced an existential crisis. Some people will remember that, especially in Germany, there was a lot of concern about putting an Italian in charge of the central bank and the uh, built newspaper here, the tabloid, famously ran a, a campaign initially against him and then kind of for him and they pictured him in one of these pointy Prussian helmets at one point from World War One, saying, you know, that he was going to be a, a strict anti-inflation uh, hawk. And I think he eventually lived up to all of those expectations only to disappoint the Germans in the end because, of course, interest rates during his time came way down, meaning that German savers basically earned nothing on their savings, and then he had the tabloids at his, at his throat once again. But I think the most important relationship he forged during that period of, of crisis really was with, with Angela Merkel, and their collaboration, I think, was much closer than we know, than is really on, on the record. You know, I, I remember hearing from sources at the time that he would regularly come to Berlin and uh, meet with her privately, have dinner with her. He definitely had her backing for the uh, whatever-it-takes speech, because for an ECB president, and I think especially for, for Draghi, you know, having the backing of uh, the German government was absolutely essential, and, and, and the backing of the German public as well. So I think that will probably help him a lot in the coming months and years, even after Angela Merkel is gone, because uh, he is somebody who is very much trusted by the German political establishment. So there you have an interesting little audio clip that we took from EU Confidential. And so you, you can see that it's just the run-of-the-mill 
discussion panel discussing Mario Draghi and his particular background and the things that you know that make him unique. And so we, we need to go on to another article here to discuss it a little further. And it's churchmilitant.com. Italy's new prime minister is a Jesuit dragon. And so it starts out in Rome. Pope Francis and his Jesuit spin doctor, Antonio Spadario, are ecstatic over the appointment of Italy's new prime minister. A Jesuit-trained economist and technocrat who shares the anti-populist and pro-European globalist ideology of the current Vatican regime. Dr. Mario Draghi, a quasi-messianic figure nicknamed Super Mario for saving the euro from collapse in 2012, will have the pontiff's strongest support as he steps into the bear pit of Italy's highly fractious domestic politics. So we'll just leave it at that. I'll add the article and there you can read more, but I don't really need to read anymore. That's all the information that I really need on the subject. I can see that their move towards global population control is not going to stop. And it's going to keep on moving forward. And you can see that here is Mario Draghi. He is a knight of Malta. He's a papal knight. He's a globalist. He's a technocrat. He's Jesuit trained. And so you can see all these things are going to become one and of a whole, apart pieces of a, of a, of a single uh, larger part. And you can see that their move towards globalism is a move towards oligarchy, internationalism, and it's a return to absolute imperialism. And that's what you were dealing with under King George III. He absolutely thought that he had the right to run his soldiers over there and shoot the, the colonists who wouldn't obey him because he's the king of the world. That's what they all believe. They all, all, all these monarchs, all these great czars, all these great uh, you know, it, it emperors, they always believe that they're the king of the world, that God has divinely ordained them to rule over all the people, and if a few people get stuck under your boot and you, you, you crush a couple people like bugs underneath your campaign towards, you know, control, then that's just what happens, okay? So that's why populism isn't very important to them, what the people think, uh, republicanism, it's, it's just all globalism, it's all about European power, and now it's, it, it's no longer about French, independence or German sovereignty or uh, obviously the British were too smart and just like they were too smart for the the Congress of Vienna, they just kind of, they were there, but they just kind of backed out and they came over and helped the Americans when it was useful to them. And it's the same thing with the European Union. They were kind of there, but then when, when the European Union would try to take away their sovereignty, then they just slipped out. So you can see that the, the UK, the, the British Empire, is not going to be saddled with the federalism and the ubiquitous control of the United Nations, or, or the European Union for that matter. So back in the 70s, the people that were present there at the time were really concerned about the Club of Rome and its depopulation agenda taking over and becoming ensconced within the, the supposed Christian theology and teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. And so you can see that as we're moving forward here, that that's exactly what's happened. And this new Jesuit Pope, Bergoglio, has you know pronounced his new Laudato Si, which in English means praise be to you, and it's his new agenda for sustainability in the United Nations. And so you can see that the, the move towards the green agenda 
uh, environmentalism as a, and sustainable development as a prerequisite for taking over control of the globe. I mean, what other reason would you have? Be like, look, we're going to take over the de facto complete control of the surface of the earth and we're going to dictate what happens with it and where you get to live and what you get to do and how much resources you get to have. So this is global communism and they're going to do it under the auspices of saving the planet. And of course, they've been they've been putting this propaganda into, uh, you know, greenhouse gas and all this kind of teaching, they've been putting it into the school and the curriculum since the 80s and the 70s. So at this point, uh, Laudato Si' Week 2021, six years ago, Laudato Si' spoke of Sister Earth crying out by issuing a call. This is a document of the Vatican. So let's just point out that this is the new doctrine that's coming out of the Holy See. And by issuing a call to dialogue on our common home, it echoed the opening words of Vatican II document, Gadium Te Spe. The joys and the hopes and the griefs and the anxieties of the people of this age, especially those who are poor or in any way afflicted, those are the joys and hopes and the griefs and the anxieties of the followers of Christ. Combined with the Synod on the Amazon River, Laudato has had a transforming effect on the way we are called to live our faith. As Christ and the Word of God made flesh, so our faith in this moment of human history is a calling to us, to our neighbors, and to human realities of our time. Pope Francis begins by declaring his desire to enter into a dialogue with all the people uh, about our common home three years before Gaudium et Space was issued in 1965. Rachel Carson, in her book entitled Silent Spring, warned of the human and environmental damage resulting from the indiscriminate use of pesticides. Uh, of course, today it's just breathing air. I mean, even if you just drive down the road with your automobile, I mean, you're, you're indiscriminately damaging the environment. And that's the, that's the free supposition, that's the, the philosophical construct by which they're operating and they expect all the kids in the schools to operate by. Many see this book as the beginning of the environmental movement. For a long time, there was little interaction between this movement and the church, but as environmental degradation began to affect the lives of more and more people, especially in poor parts of the world, the call to care for the people of this age became a call to care for our common home. Laudato C has evoked a powerful response reaching beyond the church. The latest report of the Club of Rome begins each chapter with the words, Come on! Chapter 2 is entitled, Come on, don't stick to the outdated philosophies, quote unquote. The first heading of this chapter is entitled Laudato Si. The Pope raises his voice. It's, it speaks to of his call for a new attitude to nature. Nature is especially seen as a system which can be studied, understood, and controlled, whereas creation can only be understood as a gift. Well, thank you, Pope Francis, for your thoughtful words. As we continue on, one of the central themes of the Club of Rome is the transition from an empty world with its limitless horizons to a full world where limits are tangible, palpable, in a Almost everything. This full world calls for the development of resources, which the science of economics is unable to measure. So I'm just glad, glad that the Holy See and the we're reading this article here from the Jesuit European Social Center. Okay, so the Jesuit Jesuit European Social Center has finally put their cards on the table and it has revealed to us that they are in fact behind the Club of Rome and behind this move towards de-evolution, towards deindustrialization and towards depopulation. And so in order to depopulate the world, you have to decide that you own the world and that you're speaking up for the poor people who have suffered so greatly because of the abuses of, of polluting. And so these are the, all the doctrines, these are all the, the mixture and the full, the fruition of the complete philosophical 
development that, that was spawned. It really began with Hegel and really it's Marx too that's behind this idea of like, look, let's just break down the human family. Let's just break down uh, all of our development and all of our progression towards uh, the, a human development it needs to be just cut off. You know, modernity itself, the, the war against the populists, the war against the, mo the modern era. You know, so this is really what we're, we're seeing. We're seeing a reversion and they've done a lot of work. They've built entire institutions. They've built entire universities and think tanks and entire international uh, you know, institutions around this whole idea that they're going to spring on us now. So now here we're at, we're at the end of our discussion, and I want to go back briefly, just really quick, to the, the Johns Hopkins podcast, where we were dealing with the professor in the beginning. And I want to sum up his remarks, because he has a lot to say about internationalism, international law, and the way that Trump really ruined it all, and how Trump really caused, you know, the international community to lose respect for America, and he just kind of he, he, the the political nature of this international move towards a global governance is pretty obvious now. So the, the communists, the Marxists, the socialists, the Democrats, and every stripe on every level, uh, the Antifa, BLM crowd on every level are going to be with Mario Draghi. They're going to be with the, the European uh, Central Bank. They're going to be with the Knights of Malta. They're going to be with this move of the Club of Rome towards depopulization. You know, they want to depopulate the world in order to save it. Let's just have more abortions. Let's just let's have more people die faster. Let's you know let's allow suicide to be a human right that we cling to here. Yeah, that just brings me right back here to the article that we were reading in 1981. The you know. Pesci outlines the Club of Rome blueprints, right? And if you read here right at the top of the article, right under the, you know, Robert McNamara is the president of the World Bank, blah, 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 blah. And it's going to go on down here and say, um, we'll, just, we'll just read, we'll start up here. Um, Former World Bank President Robert McNamara, a Senghor, declared, The World Bank says the economic problems can't be resolved by ignoring cultural questions. Before a new economic uh, world order can be established, there must be a new world cultural order. Uh, Senghor opposed the ideas of the Jesuit Teilhard de Chardin as a source of this cultural order. And, and Teilhard de Chardin is an individual we're going to talk about very soon. So I just wanted to add this little part. And it goes on with the article, The Right to Die. The European Labor Party, which has tremendous influence throughout the continent, dating back to the party chairman Helga Zeppelin-Rutz attack on the Club of Rome at the 1974 Bucharest Population Conference, disrupted the smooth socialist international proceedings and caused a stir by distributing a leaflet denouncing the socialists as mass murderers. The leaflet, which the party said has been printed in the tens of thousands, began with a quotation from the economist and conference participant Jacques Attili, an advisor to Francois Mitterrand. Quote, unquote, in a democratic society, the right to commit suicide is the most fundamental of all democratic rights. And it, so, quote, unquote, in the world of the global 2000 players, as in the concentration cramps of Nazi Germany, indeed is the single right that they most want to leave to mankind. Okay, so that, that's what we're talking about. But let me just go on here. And we need to, to further the discussion with, with the professor from Yale, the John Hopkins podcast, as he's going to just kind of like poo-poo on Trump and, and make it unambiguously clear how political this idea of world population, world socialism is, and how seriously it's being centered in Rome, out of the Vatican, through the Jesuits. Okay, so it's, it's they're really super technocratic and quasi-intellectual 
mechanism by which they're going to use to get all the world population to, to accept depopulation. And you're really accepting it when you take that, that jab in your arm because all the leaders of this kind of pharmaceutical industry are there to bring about this Agenda 21, to bring about depopulation. They're not there to keep you healthy. Okay, so let's just get that straight. You think that the federal government is going to bring about a vaccine that's going to keep you all healthy? That's, that's funny. That's some funny stuff. But here, let's listen to the rest of the, the professor's thoughts on these matters. Now, what happened is, what happens when a nation becomes extremely powerful and rich? Uh, there's a tendency to say, well, uh, we're exceptional, and we don't have to play by these rules. And uh, there's a tension. You know, the United States is exceptional in a good way and in a bad way. The United States has been exceptional in its leadership of this system. Uh, and it's been, uh, at times, exceptional in demanding uh, exemptions from the system. Uh, which is what happened, I think, during the Trump era. And uh, what happened there, and we saw it pretty graphically, was a great loss of respect for the United States, uh, a loss of leadership capacity, uh, a reduction in our ability to influence uh, the world, and most fundamentally, a lack of a cooperative attack on some of the world's global problems. I mean, just think about what happened. The Trump administration withdrew from the World Health Organization during a global pandemic, which no nation can solve by itself. It's really hard to imagine a more counterproductive move, except for withdrawing from the Paris Climate Agreement at a moment when climate change has really uh, come onto everyone's consciousness as one of the great threats of existential threats of our time. So I think we just hit on some of the, 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 the most interesting factors underlying this Marxist, leftist, totalitarian, technotronic, right, deep state control that we're seeing, this cabal of Malthusian depopulation, you know, elitists. That's what we're dealing with. And we're just a population. Just like the people of Italy are just another population set, the people in Peru, another given population, they're, they're technotronic and deep state manipulation of the internationalist mechanisms, the United Nations, the World Bank, and so on and so forth. So it doesn't surprise me that Trump wanted to leave the World Health Organization. It seemed like the World Health Organization was being used as an instrument to make the world sick. It was being used as an instrument of propaganda. It was, it was just another mouthpiece of this Fauciism. And so you can see that ultimately the, the move towards globalization is going to destroy American nationalism. So if we continue on with the World Bank, what do we expect to get? If we, if we continue on with the World Health Organization, what do you think that we're going to ultimately get? You're going to have these little, uh, these Knights of Malta, these little Jesuit trained, you know, conspirators sneaking around, funding Wuhan, weaponizing uh, viruses, gain of function experimentation going on all over the place. And so this is what you're having with the United Nations and with the globalists. They're ultimately functioning as a mechanism of Roman imperialism. Okay, so that's where international law stems from. That's where you're going to get globalism. That's where you're going to get these, the, the Knights of Malta, the Knights of Columbus, and the Knights of the Order of St. John, and the Knights of this and the Knights of that, all these all the different papal orders. And you can see that the High Knights with the, uh, in the Scottish Rite Lodge there, they're all Templar Knights or Knights of the Rosy Cross or so on and so forth. It's a constant move back towards feudalism, towards the, the rule and the reign of nobility, the right of the kings to reign over 
uh, everyone else who's just a regular man, right? Just the regular nobodies, the hayseeds, the regular white trash people out there just have no title to any throne anywhere. The, the Vatican and the Jesuits have no interest in you. You just you're just an eater. You're just you're just having babies too much. You're overproducing. You're over, you're overpopulating the, the, the planet, and we need to just kind of wipe you out. And that's the agenda. That's the agenda uh, agenda twenty one in the United Nations, and that's the plan that uh, moving forward that you can expect. You can expect more uh, viruses and shots and more more uh, solutions to the problem that uh, the Club of Rome founders face. So as we're developing this, the, the the information and the background narrative of this particular podcast, we have to go into a little bit more. I have another article here. It's called. We really need to to go into some further research here about the, the connections between Papal Rome and the European Union, and we have to recognize that the different power structures, the aristocracy and nobility of Europe, were not interested in giving away their, their divine right to rule everyone else and be separated from their the, the elite nature of their, their power that they're developing there by sharing authority and hegemony that's being developed in the European Union with the, the common people. So that this is going to be an exercise in absolutism in as much as the EU and the Brussels uh, supranational government is going to absorb all national prerogative and authority so that you know you can't pass any laws in Europe unless you go through the EU so that the member states are really going to lose all of their defining autonomy and personality as nations and it's going to be absorbed they're going to they're going to eventually use one currency and have one system of laws and so that's why you're going to see Britain ultimately is going to back out and leave because they're not interested in losing their, their sovereignty and have their entire nation be absorbed into the European Union project so in order to really get into this discussion more, we have this fascinating lecture by Richard Bennett and Michael DeSamian. So let's listen to that. Throughout the centuries, Rome has substituted her sacraments for the gospel in a consistently degrading insult to the grace of God. Shameful to God and damning to man is the Pope's memorandum to Europe. We are at a seminal moment in history as the Holy Roman Empire re-emerges as a European superstate. Throughout her history, the papacy has remained self-governing and invincible to every restraining force other than that of the power of God in the Gospel. Bible believers need to be aware of the times in which we live. We need to study the history of the EU in order to see the outworking of the dial of Rome. A short history of the European Union. After the destruction, ruin and enormous human cost of the Second World War, statesmen and politicians resolved to ensure that it would never happen again. In 1946, Winston Churchill suggested in a famous speech at Zurich in Switzerland that, quote, we must build a kind of United States of Europe. This was not a commitment for Britain to participate in the European project, as Euro enthusiasts have often insisted. Churchill envisaged a Western Europe of free, independent, sovereign nations, not an undemocratic federal superstate. 
Together, the nations would reach for a destiny of unprecedented cooperation and harmony. In 1950, the Schumann Plan proposed the supranational pooling of the German and French coal and steel industries in order to lay the basis of European economic unity. The partial merger of the economies of the two traditional enemies would ensure continuing peace between them. French Foreign Minister Robert Schumann and German, German Chancellor Konrad Adenauer signed the agreement the Treaty of Paris, as co-founders of the Franco-German Coal and Steel Confederation. Like their colleagues Jean Monnet and Paul-Henri Spark, they were both devout Roman Catholics who shared the vision of successive post-war popes for a re-Catholicized and united Europe. Adenauer and Schumann, along with Alcide de Gasperi, all three founding fathers are in the process of being made into saints by the Vatican as a reward for founding the new Europe, quote, on Roman Catholic principles. The European Economic Community, the EEC, this was established in 1957 by the Treaty of Rome and brought in Italy, Holland, Belgium and Luxembourg to join with France and Germany in removing trade barriers between member states and unifying their economic policies. It made clear to those with sufficient stamina to read the treaty's lengthy and turgid document that the aim of the project was always to achieve political unity in economic disguise, an ever closer union. In 1962, the common agricultural policy was introduced with a single European market and price fixing, which has consistently favoured French farmers. The Northwest Technocrat Journal commented on the developing design of the European project at that time. I quote, Fascism in Europe is about to be reborn in respectable business attire and the Treaty of Rome will be finally implemented to its fullest extent. The dream of a Holy Roman Empire returning to power to dominate and direct the so-called forces of Christian mankind of the Western world is not dead, but still stalks through the antechambers of every national capital of continental Western Europe in the determination of the leaders in the common market to restore the Holy Roman Empire with all that that means. Nearly 30 years later, the London-based Sunday Telegraph was to express the same concern in a major article headed, Now a Holy European Empire? It stated, The Vatican notoriously thinks in centuries. In Pope John Paul II, we have the most political Pope of modern times. It is in the movement towards federalism of the common market, with the coming membership of Eastern European countries, as well as in the turmoil of the Soviet Union, that the Pope may see the greatest possibility for an increase in Catholic political power since the fall of Napoleon, or since the Counter-Reformation. The common market itself 
started under the inspiration of Catholic politicians, such as Adenauer of Germany, Paul Henri Spark, John Monet, and Robert Schumann, the EC Social Charter, and the social Socialism of Jacques Delors, president, former president of the European Commission, are imbued with Catholic social doctrine. If European federalism triumphs, the EC will indeed be an empire. It will lack an emperor, but it will have the Pope. It is difficult not to think that Votilla, the former Pope John Paul II, realises this. In 1967, Prime Minister Harold Wilson announced that Britain would apply to join the European Community, or the Common Market. The British people voted to do so in a referendum in the belief that they were joining a closer trading relationship, a kind of club, rather than being bound into an evolving superstate. Unfortunately, no more people had read the Treaty of Rome in the 1960s than had read Mein Kampf in the 1930s. Politicians and opinion formers, who should have known better, accepted assurances that no loss of sovereignty was involved in acceding to the EEC. In 1973, Prime Minister, Conservative Prime Minister Edward Heath, who definitely did know better, committed Britain into membership of the EEC. Ireland and Denmark joined the same year. In 1979, the European Parliament was established in Strasbourg with its first direct elections. The word economic was carefully dropped from the name of the project that was now to be described as the European Community, just EC. Greece joined the EC in 1981, which was the year of the Single European Act, enacting the gradual transfer of executive, legislative and judicial powers from member states to EC instrumentalities. Spain and Portugal signed up to the EC in 1986, making a total of 12 member states. In 1990, East Germany joined as part of a united Germany. In February 1992, the Maastricht Treaty, or Treaty of European Union, was signed at Maastricht in Holland by the foreign and finance ministers of the member states. Its objective was to bind the 12 nations into cooperation, or, quote, ever closer union, on a range of issues other than economic and trading. To this end, the EC was renamed the European Union. The Maastricht Treaty established economic and monetary union, which would lead ultimately to all member states sharing a single currency. The religious dimension, although not apparent, was the key to what was being formed. Among European leaders who were most influential in furthering the Maastricht agenda, were Jacques Delors and Dutch Prime Minister Rue Blubbers, both Jesuit-educated, as well as devout Catholics. German Chancellor Kohl and Prime Minister Felipe González of Spain were alongside them. The 
these four leaders were all products of the Roman Catholic social movement, which believes that there is no nobler task than the unifying of our continent, and views the idea of a united Europe as essentially a Catholic concept. The Amsterdam Treaty followed, and was signed in 1997 as a further notch of the ratchet of ever closer union, meaning, in fact, ever diminishing sovereignty, following the principle of acquis communautaire, which asserts, quote, that what has been acquired cannot be taken away. The Amsterdam Treaty gave more powers to the unelected commission, and particularly to its unelected president, as the initiator, administrator, mediator, negotiator, and guardian of the treaties. The Treaty of Nice, signed by Prime Minister Tony Blair in December 2000, was the last in a series of treaties which have progressively drained the UK of its sovereignty. At Nice, there was finally and irrevocably established the EU as a sovereign federal state. A new European criminal code, Corpus Juris, is planned to replace the classic long-standing British criminal code. Vital elements such as trial by jury and habeas corpus are missing from this new code. EU supreme power. Even before the Treaty of Nice came into force, the EU Constitutional Convention, presided over by former French President Valérie Giscard d'Estaing, produced its first draft of the Constitution for Europe in October 2002. On the 13th of June 2003, a final version of the draft treaty establishing a Constitution for Europe was produced. Quoting from the London Daily Telegraph of that time, To the strains of Beethoven's Ode to Joy, the Convention on the Future of Europe proclaimed agreement yesterday on a written constitution for a vast European Union of 450 million citizens bringing together East and West. Valérie Gustave Destin, the chair of the 105 Strong Body, held up a text. Quote, We have sown the seed, and I am sure that seed will grow and bring fruit. Europe's voice will be heard and respected on the international stage. Instead of a half-formed Europe, we have a Europe with a legal identity, with a single currency, common justice, a Europe which is about to have its own defence. There was no vote. Sizistar, famed for his autocratic style during 16 months of stormy debates, simply discerned consensus among the MPs, MEPs and national envoys. Few were willing to spoil the party by crying foul. End of the quote from the Daily Telegraph. The Constitution gives the EU full legal personality and determines that EU law will have primacy over the law of member states. It prohibits Westminster from legislating in most areas of national life, agriculture, justice, energy, social policy, economic cohesion, 
transport, the environment, and aspects of public health, unless Brussels chooses to waive, waive its power. If the new constitution is accepted, the EU will no longer be a treaty organisation in which member states agree to lend power to Brussels for certain purposes, on the understanding that they can take them back again. Rather, the EU will itself have become the fount of power, with the ability to sign international treaties in its own right. It will have its own president, foreign minister and foreign policy, its own parliament, supreme court, flag, anthem and currency. It will have become a sovereign state, in fact a federal superstate. The member states whose constitutions will be subject to this higher constitution will cease to be sovereign. The new order will be irreversible. Mr Giscard makes clear that the national veto is to be abolished in 50 new areas, including immigration and asylum. The same spirit of domination. Under the new constitution's rules, no nation is to be allowed to secede from the EU except by a two-thirds majority vote of member states in agreement with the secession. The EU will acquire competence in all areas of foreign policy, including the progressive framing of a common defence policy, though major decisions must be unanimous. The European Court, which acquires vast powers, will ensure that member states, quote, actively and unreservedly support the EU's common, common foreign and security policy. Article 8 of the draft constitution, which also imposes an obligation of loyal cooperation vis-a-vis -vis the Union of member states, reinforces the supremacy of EU law over the laws of member states. An EU Attorney General will be able to prosecute cross-border crime, a catch-all term that will allow Brussels the supreme jurisdiction throughout. The Constitution lacks any serious democratic dimension and is clearly designed to strengthen the EU power structure for the benefit of the European elite. All right, so that was an in-depth discussion with Michael DeSamnian and Richard Bennett, and um, it's a really engrossing and well-detailed, in-depth analysis of the issue with the European Union, so I hope that you'll go through and listen to, to some more of the, uh, the program, and I added the link in there with the show notes. And uh, as we're going forward here, in order to really take a closer look at the nature of the Club of Rome, we have to have a close look at the the individual who is the president of the Club of Rome. And uh, in order to, to get a kind of a look at him, I mean, these individuals are elitists, they're globalists, they're very wealthy, they're they're monarchists, monarchialists, right? They're interested in, in the monarchy and they're interested in establishing the authority of, of monarchy over the different areas of the world. And in this case, the president of the Club of Rome is... His Royal Highness Prince El Hassan bin Talal. So he's going to be the Prince of Jordan. Okay, so the Prince of Jordan is the is the president of the Club of Rome, and we need to listen to some of the the things he has to say. So let's just go ahead and give it a listen. 
Welcome to another edition of The Leaders. I'm Yuli Ismatono from Asia Views, here in Islamabad, Pakistan, to chat with His Royal Highness Prince Hassan bin Talal of Jordan. Prince Hassan is in Islamabad to chair a roundtable seminar on voices from Asia towards a process for cooperation and security. There is no better person to speak on a variety of topics than Prince Hassan, whose interests range from human rights, the environment, empowering the poor, and interfaith dialogue. He founded the Royal Scientific Society and the Arab Youth Forum. He has been president of the Club of Rome since 1999 and co-chairs the Independent Commission on International Humanitarian Issues. He is a member of the board of directors of the Nuclear Threat Initiative and the International Crisis Group. And he is the moderator of the World Conference of Religions for Peace. There is more. This is just a few of a long list. On February 1 this year, the Oxford-educated Prince Hassan bin Talal was named Champion of the Earth 2007, along with six others, by the United Nations Environment Program for, and I quote, his belief in transboundary collaboration to protect the environment and for addressing environmental issues in a holistic manner. Your Highness, thank you for sparing some time to be with us. Thank you for inviting me. Your Highness, allow me first to congratulate you on your being named as Champion of the Earth for 2001 by the UN uh, Environment Program on February 1. While we're on the subject of the environment, as you know, there is currently great debate on the issue of climate change and global warming. What is your view on this? The flip side of Al Gore's inconvenient truth is the demographic uh, change, the climate refugees. And of course, uh, the Meadows report is now 30 years old, the Club of Rome predicted up to 87% accuracy on its uh, computer model, the effects of uh, uh, climate change um, in the context of industrialization and uh, I want to say that um, there is uh, a view which uh, is a historic view that um, actually this has uh, developed through the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution, um, recently uh, emphasized in the Paris Conference. I agree with this, but what is of concern to me is that when Mrs. Brundtland presented the Earth Report, uh, there was no mention of the 40 million people living under the trees. Uh, of Amazonia. And today when we speak about um, cities like uh, New York or London being affected or the Dutch coast by rising tide, my question is basically where are these people going to go? And uh, when we look at Africa, of course, we see um, the increase of uh, HIV AIDS. Uh, we see the possibility of uh, greater interest in the Sudan with a large biodiversity in the Sudan. And uh, my question is, are these people going to uh, be forced to migrate? And if so, on what circumstances, uh, on what conditions uh, to the environment, uh, to the local population, and uh, indeed, what form of complementarity we're going to see between uh, territoriality, identity, and migration? So, in other words, uh, you you concur with this um, this kind of warning? 
I concur entirely, but uh, my view is uh, that it will not then be a question of survival of the fittest. It will rather be going back to the humanist view of Bertrand Russell in the beginning of the 20th century, that international resources will have to be used, economic, uh, natural uh, resources, as well as human resources, on the basis of rediscovering the common good. Each region has uh, uh, common uh, denominators, and uh, globally we have to meet between uh, regional commons and uh, global commons. There's a view, though, especially in the developing world, that why should we sacrifice a lot at the behest of the developed world who has already spent their resources? Well, uh, if you're talking about Africa, for example, I think the least uh, polluting um, uh, continent is Africa, and this has been uh, proven. As far as the developing world is uh, concerned, nobody is concerned about uh, Bangladesh, which after all has been obliged to turn to uh, aquaculture from uh, uh, traditional agriculture. Two-thirds of the country are underwater. They've changed the whole pattern of their life. A huge convulsion is taking place in uh, Indonesia and the countries of Southeast Asia as we speak, particularly with the rising uh, floods. Uh, the tsunami, we warned as a humanitarian commission in the 80s that we needed a tsunami early warning device that would have cost the equivalent of a five-star hotel at that time. But uh, sadly, the, um, with the exception of ASEAN, where actually you now have an energy charter, you now have a social uh, charter, and now we see the early beginnings of this in uh, South Asia, uh, the search for uh, a stability charter. There is very little emphasis being given in uh, the um, oil-rich uh, uh, countries to the fact that 100 million job opportunities have to be created in the West Asia, North Africa region. I hope that these uh, timely warnings of climate change will bring some sense to the region. It seems that the hot political issues, Palestine, uh, the question of Iraq, the question of Afghanistan, uh, bring more expenditure on weapons, uh, more uh, expenditure uh, uh, from the returns of oil, on uh, non-essential issues than uh, a, a proper uh, focus on a cohesion fund for a region that desperately needs it. Do, do you get a sense that not enough is being uh, done to instill this sense of urgency at a certain level, at a practical level among the people uh, to address serious environmental problems like we've mentioned forest degradation and the um, excessive use of uh, non-renewable energy. Well, speaking here in, in Pakistan, I think that we find that Pakistan is among the um, uh, most uh, consuming uh, countries of, of firewood. The whole of West Asia today is turning to firewood with the rise of um, uh, energy prices. Electricity is going to increase 160%. That's equivalent to the total aid to Africa and the total uh, uh, write-off put together or exceeds that figure. So uh, we're living a situation where an alternative energy agency has to be promoted. And this is why we're proposing through trans-regional energy collaboration a solar um, uh, city, really, for uh, uh, Gaza. 
providing water and electricity. In Sana'a and Yemen, where water is being mined, uh, this historical city will need the new source of water. And we have again uh, presented this uh, suggestion through uh, the Club of Rome and through uh, the uh, German science community. Today, Germany uh, makes 15 billion euros out of alternative energy and creates 170,000 job opportunities. Why are we not doing the same for ourselves? So that was Hassan, uh, Prince, His Royal Highness, Prince Hassan bin Talil, uh, Prince of Jordan. Okay, so, and you got to remember that the British went down and destroyed the Ottoman Empire in World War One, and carved all the, the different Arab nations out of the Ottoman Empire and set them up with, they set up uh, Saudi Arabia with the Saud family, and they set up the Jordan uh, area with the family of the Talil uh, family uh, in order to be the new royal, uh, the royal nobility, the royal, the king of the region. Okay, so they're not there to set up democracy, they're there to set up monarchy and defend it, and you can see that this particular individual is the, the, the president of the Club of Rome, and you can see that as a technocrat and as a, an elitist and a globalist, he's there to, he's concerned about how people in the Amazon live. He's concerned about how people in other areas of the world live, and, and they're, they're making policies that will distribute the goods throughout the world. They're making policies that are going to determine how much resources a particular region gets, and they're making policies on a global scale. So I just thought it would be good to introduce you to the president of the Club of Rome, and you can get a feel for him, and I'll add the video clip in with the links, and you can check it out, and you can see what the future is. You can see by listening to these individuals, by by taking note of who they are, the particular organizations and the particular papal knighthoods they, they have. And as we go forward, we're going to learn a lot more about the Club of Rome and their position concerning democracy and world populations.